Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Pure Hoops podcast most definitely does reflect the views of our management. Here's three-time NBA champ BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. The Pure Hoops podcast, we are back. Eric Newman in a very frigid New York. BJ Armstrong in L.A. BJ, did you rock the the January uh, L.A. hoodie this morning because you had a little chill? Unlike us here in New York, who are dealing with 23 degrees, what you got? <laughs> well, you know, Eric, because I, I grew up in uh, in Michigan, I, 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 I'm well aware of how cold it is. and uh, But I do have on my hoodie this morning, and, uh, you know, it's very appropriate uh, wear. Yeah, I can't wait we to drag. I can't. I can't wait to drag you out for another early morning pod the next time I'm in LA and and see you freeze your ass off when it's like 52 degrees. I can't wait. I can't wait. But what what's really what's what's really got me in that like waking up this morning, knowing it was going to be freezing. I'm bouncing around New York today from for a, a, some meetings and getting stuff done on the film side, and just thinking about the game that I had to sit through last night. It, you know. It was Marcus Smart Day for NBC Sports Boston, so they did all this cool stuff with Marcus during the day and this cool content. Then the team comes out against the Spurs on uh, Wednesday night, and they're sleepwalking. And they finally start to get back in the game, and you know they, they had it down to, uh, I think he was either 11 or 9, and Kemba gets drilled by LaMarcus Aldridge on what I think was a it was a it was a bang bang call that could have gone either way. Um, you feel differently, I know, but Kemba got up, had some choice words for the official, asking him what the bleep are you looking at? And this is a 27-year-old first-year official, gives him a T. Kemba has something else to say, and he throws him out of the game. And my point is, Kemba Walker has earned the right to show some emotion on the floor, and in that situation even if you agree or disagree with the foul or non-foul call on Aldridge, you got to let him vent a little bit and walk away. Your thoughts? Well, look, as a guard, as a player, a former player who has been in that position many, many times, the person that I – if I'm Kimber Walker – The person that I'm mad at is my teammate for not telling me that there's a screen to my right, if I recall the play. And we have and we have no idea if he if he if it was. No, no, we have an idea. No, we we no, we have an idea. No, there was a all great defensive teams. What's the one? What's the one narrative? Communication, communication, communication. 
communication, okay? When your bigs don't communicate with the guards, okay? As a guard, you have to feel the game behind you because you can't see what the bigs can see. So when you pick up full court as a guard or you're playing defense, you have to depend on the other people behind you. Eric, pick right. Eric, pick left. Eric, go over the top. That's the... That's how you play the game. Your guards can get you really hurt if they don't communicate with you. So I remember the first time that happened to me, and I got clocked, right? I got clocked. Who didn't talk? I, 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 it doesn't matter. You know, I'm not going to throw anybody <laughs> under the bus. It doesn't really matter. What does matter is that I had a coach who called a timeout who said, you know what? I'm going to do bleep, bleep, bleep if one of you bigs get my guard hurt because my guards are doing their job. Yep. Now. For sure. That's, that's the game of basketball. Now, I get Kemba Walker, and I get he didn't see what happened, but I'm sure when he sees the tape and he can look at the tape, LaMarcus Aldridge didn't do anything. He set a good pick. Set a hard, he set a good set pick. a hard screen in tight quarters. He set a hard. He set a hard screen. He right. But the, let's keep one more thing in mind here. In November in San Antonio, he buried Gordon Hayward in tight quarters with the screen, and Gordon had his hand in there, and that broke his hand. I'm not saying Aldridge is a dirty player by any means or is trying to hurt anybody. There's just there's that's got to be in the back of one's mind. When your teammate gets taken no, out by a guy and then you get knocked on your ass and you get up fired up. And my point with Kemba I mean, is he's earned the right to be pissed off for 15 to 20 seconds before getting thrown out of a game because that's not who Kemba Walker is. That's what I'm saying. Okay. That's, that's fine. Okay. And this guy is a referee, whoever the gentleman was, earns the right in a subjective manner to, to, to differ with our opinion and throw him out of the game doesn't make it right or wrong it just is what it is it just is what it is so I, I i i get it kimball should be upset but he should be upset with his teammate for not allow for not telling him pick right i didn't see lamarcus move his hands up and do something i mean he said a good sp- a good screen i mean that hit lamarcus dead center in the chest yep that was a good screen now fair enough Fair enough, you, you, my friend. As, you know, Fair you enough. know what I mean. I like, yeah. I'm just, I'm just saying. But I, I get it. I understand. I, I, I remember that. I feel for Kemba because that yeah. is tough. That's yeah. tough. You know, back in, uh, back in the South Shore of Long Island, BJ, we ran the flex to death against people with no shot clock. So you're talking, <laughs> you're, you're talking to the Long Island screen master over here. It was the best. Okay. It was All the right. best. There was nothing like breaking the will of the opponent with screens. There really wasn't. Mm. I'll send you some game tape. You're gonna love it. You're gonna love it. <laughs> there's nothing like there's nothing like the nostalgic VHS of the '90s. But speaking of nostalgia, uh, I'm very excited about uh, our guest today. He's been on with us a, a couple of times on, on Pure Hoops Media since we've launched. Uh, what's now approaching uh, one year ago, and it is NBA senior writer from Bleacher Report, my former colleague and friend, the one and only. Howard Beck, and Howard, before you say a thing, just so you know, BJ and I did an incredible Christmas movie discussion, 
and I represented our love for Die Hard very well. Howard, welcome back to Peer Hoops Media. Newman, Booby, thank you for having me back on. Die Hard's the greatest <laughs> Christmas movie of all time. Nobody should ever dispute it. Guess what? Guess what? BJ came to the table with. Uh, Home Alone. <laughs> BJ, tell him. Oh, no, you tell him. You, you, you. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna let you go. You're going here, so I'm gonna let you do it. BJ comes to the table with Charlie Brown. In very I'm unique solid. fashion. In very unique yeah. fashion. At that listen, it's solid. I don't think you can ever go wrong with the peanuts. Like they're they're a classic. I, I'm I'm okay with that. Uh, my only problem is that of all of the peanuts holiday specials that we all grew up on, I think the Christmas one's actually kind of weak compared to some of the others. So, <laughs> wow. come on, Howard. Come on, Howard. That, that, that's Charlie Brown. You know, that's fire. That's, that's Charlie. I'm just, I'm just picturing. I'm just, B, I'm just picturing BJ like roaming around Los Angeles with the theme song playing all the time. That's all I've been thinking about since then. So. BJ, you got one of those. You got. You have the Charlie Brown shirt. You got like the little, uh, little jagged pattern shirt, t-shirt. You have one of those. I I have all things Charlie Brown. You know, Charlie Brown's Christmas tree is in my house. We, all things <laughs> Charlie Brown. We have. We we are Charlie Brown fans. There. <laughs> Amazing. So, as as pleasant as these movies discussions are, the uh, exchange between Jimmy Butler and T.J. Warren Wednesday night in Miami was was far from that. Um, Butler posted it on on Instagram when they're playing again. Of course, says uh, you can't bleep and guard me, Howard. With what you know about Jimmy Butler, with what you know about Heat culture, with what we know about what the Pacers are trying to establish. Does, does anything about this surprise you from this Pacers heat matchup uh, this past Wednesday? None of it surprises me from Jimmy's side of it. And look, <laughs> I'm just going to uh, go straight to, to the stats here because I just found this so amusing. So Kirk Goldsberry from ESPN, who's one of their stats whiz, whizzes, um, put this up. Jimmy Butler versus TJ Warren last two seasons. This is per, per 100 possessions. When Butler defends Warren, Warren, 13 points on 14 shots, which, you know, look, that's what you would expect. TJ Warren's not a big offensive player. Um, when Warren defends Butler, 20, Butler goes for 20.8 points on 12.5 shots. Extremely efficient. So when Jimmy Butler says, in the heat of battle, you can't guard me, and a bunch of other stuff that, you know, I probably shouldn't repeat, I give him credit for being accurate. Like, this is – he's not lying. Jimmy Butler's telling the truth. T.J. Warren can't guard him. Now, listen, in fairness, a lot of guys can't guard Jimmy. Jimmy's great. Um, I love Jimmy Butler's competitive, fiery spirit. Uh, as long as it doesn't cross the line, as long as you're – and as long as you're backing it up, which clearly, as we've established, he is, I got no problem with it at all, I spe especially on a, a youngish team like the Heat. I think that, that the feistiness and the confidence spreads to your teammates. I think that the Heat – uh, are, are a much bigger force in the East than anybody anticipated coming into this season. And some of that's due to Jimmy. Some of that's due to the, these, these young guys that they've cultivated, that they've discovered, that have really blossomed quickly. And I think part of that is because if you've got a guy like Jimmy soaking up a lot of the, the spotlight and the responsibility, it gives you as, as secondary players that much more ability to kind of just do your thing and not have to overdo it and to play off of him. The Heat are great. Jimmy's been fantastic, uh, and yeah, I, I love the exchange with TJ. As long as it doesn't spill over. I don't want to see fights or anything. We don't need to have that stuff going on. But the feistiness and the trash talk going back and forth, I think is great. 
You know, Howard, speaking of this Pacers, uh, Victor Oladipo has been eyeing a return roughly around January, late January, January 29th, coming back into the fold. What do you think his presence back in the in the rotation, what do you think that will do for the Pacers as they are looking for a return from him uh, coming back from injury? Well, this is really interesting because, you know, there was a scenario under which the Pacers could have really wilted without him, maybe be out of the playoff picture, and it would have been Oladipo having to play savior, come in and save the season, get them into the playoff picture. Or maybe people be talking about if they were out of the playoff picture, hey, you know what, just, just forget the season. Shut him down, let him heal up for, for another few months and go get a lottery pick or whatever. But the Pacers have never been a tanking kind of team. They've always been committed to being as good as they possibly can be. We've seen the last few years under Nate McMillan, they consistently overachieve or at least outpace our expectations. And maybe that's on us for not respecting them properly or giving them enough credit. But they've had a a, a really solid, more than solid season, obviously, 23 and 15 and and sixth in the East as we speak right now. And Oladipo coming back in, now the stakes are higher. Now the stakes are, well – you're only a few games out of the third seed in the East. Like, can you be a top tier playoff team? Can you be, can you get home court advantage in the first round of the playoffs? Um, Can you make some noise in the East? All of which I'm going to now put a big, big caveat on, which is Oladipa will have been out for, I don't even know how long it'll been 10 months, nine months. It's a long stretch. It's it's pushing, it's pushing 10. Yeah. So long stretch um, and unusual injury And I always say this with guys with long-term injuries and especially with anything that's unusual or really serious, we just don't know until they come back if they're going to be themselves or how long it's going to take to be themselves. And so they'll have 30 plus games to try to, to, to get that going again. That's not that much time. So I do think that we should all temper expectations as exciting as it is for the Pacers and for their fans. I just think that we cannot assume that Victor Oladipo on day one or even on day 10 is going to be the guy that we're used to seeing. But if he can be that guy and quickly, that's the dynamism they need because they're a top 10 defense. They are a middling offense and they just, they need that dynamic scorer and playmaker who can open things up for everybody else. And if, if, if Oladipo is himself, um, boy, it, it really puts them right in the thick of things. You know, how you talk about how the Pacers have held down the fort. I think we're seeing, them build a great organizational culture from the Nate McMillan hardcore attitude to the, the the makeup of the guys on the roster. Another team we thought was creating that culture last season was the Brooklyn Nets. And, you know, Oladipo's coming back for Indiana. Kyrie Irving, supposedly, we won't be seeing anytime soon for Brooklyn. We're hearing all kinds of stuff about what he's doing and not doing to treat this injured shoulder. Can you shed some light on what's going on in Brooklyn and what's going on with Kyrie as we sit here to start 2020? Uh, so we're recording, this is, you know, Thursday afternoon, right? It was just a little while ago before I got on with you guys that uh, the Nets reporters uh, reporting from practice said that uh, Kyrie Irving had gone through some stuff with the team today. Um that uh, it's the, this is the report. This is from Alex Schiffer from the athletics says Kyrie Irving was able to practice today, contact included, trying to get a few more practices in before eva- uh, reevaluating said he played in four on four and five on five, no limitations um, outside of shoulder rehab. So 
it looks certainly looks like if his shoulder is okay and if he's going through five on five contact that he's making every effort to get back as, as as soon as possible. And so I think it's just a matter of how the shoulder responds and whether the medical staff clears him. I think if they've cleared him for five on five contact, I assume that means he's going to be cleared for, for games and it's just up to him and his comfort level. So that's where things are. I, I, I think we should not be surprised if he's back on the court soon. Would you, Beck, would you uh, venture to say, would the, would the Nets be wise to shut him down for the rest of the year so that they can have a, with the idea of having him and Kevin Durant healthy for next year, would you say that's an option for the next as they approach this shoulder injury? It's a tempting thought, right? Because you figure, you know what, this season's teetering a little bit anyway. And, you know, really the extra point of the exercise of signing Kyrie and KD was to have Kyrie and KD. And, and it's a much different context if you bring them back together to start next season. But I think that, and you'd give Kyrie obviously that much more time to, uh, to get healthy. But I, no, I think there's much more value in Kyrie playing as much of this season as possible. Because while things will change again once KD is on the court with them, I think even just adapting to Kyrie and Kyrie adapting to them is important, even without KD around. And what we saw in the early part of the season before Kyrie got hurt was it was a little bumpy. And that happens when you take a high usage guy, you know, forget all the other stuff, the baggage from Boston and everything. I mean, I'm not saying that that stuff's irrelevant, but I am just saying that no matter who you are, if you're a high usage player being thrown onto a team that was much more about this kind of all-for-one culture and the ball moves and everything. It's an adjustment for both entities, both, both the player and for the team he's joining. And it, it was a struggle early on for them, I think. They've been playing pretty well overall without him, although lately uh, they've been kind of a mess. And we're now seeing the real need for a guy who can do what Kyrie does. But I think getting him back in the mix, uh, get, having that time for them all to kind of adapt to each other and try to figure out what the right rhythm is in playing around Kyrie and, you know, and, and, and make a run of the playoffs, as, which is what they expected to do anyway. And then KD comes into a situation where, okay, now they've established a pecking order where Kyrie, Spencer Dinwiddie, Karis LeVert, Joe Harris, they're all, they all know how to play together. And then the next step is, okay, how do we integrate Kevin Durant, one of the greatest scorers we've ever seen? And that'll be the next step. But I, I, think, I think having Kyrie get comfortable with this Nets team first is important. You know, Howard, you hit it right on the head mentioning Joe Harris, Karis LeVert, Spencer Dinwiddie. Uh, quickly before we, we pivot from there, um, what's it going to take? Ky- what's it going to take for Kyrie to realize that he doesn't have to be that ball dominant, and he can actually make his life easier by playing off those guys? Because we've seen Lavert and Dinwiddie specifically as really high quality playmakers for Brooklyn over the last two seasons. Yeah, and that's the strength of this Nets team. And the reason that they've been an overachiever the last couple of years is because you know obviously they 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 play tough and they, they, uh, they, they're been a feisty team, just a competitive team overall. And they play defense, but they, the ball moved on offense. And it was a really, even when it was, you know, a lot of D'Angelo Russell last year, um, this was a team that, that really prized under Kenny Atkinson ball movement. And, you know, Kyrie is such a great solo artist that like a lot of guys who have his talent over the, the, the decades, it, the temptation is to try to go it alone. Well, he doesn't have to with this team. And Dinwiddie is, is a guy who can do a lot with the ball in his hands. Karis Levert's a guy who can do, the ball, uh, do a lot with the ball in his hands. They've got all these options. 
And so my hope would be, the optimist view would be that Kyrie Irving, while hurt, is sitting there watching the way that they play with the ball moving more, with it being more of a shared responsibility and, and saying, all right, maybe I should adapt a little bit to how they, they're playing and not try to just take over the moment I'm back out on the court. Um, now, some people may snicker at that and say, well, that's just not Kyrie Irving. But listen, I, I think we got to give room for all of these guys, no matter what stage of their career they're at, to have the, the opportunity to evolve. And if he's you know, truly being as reflective as it seems about what went wrong in Boston last year, then I, I got to think he's open to kind of trying a, a, a different way when he comes back, seeing that they've had some success doing it as, as more of a, a ball movement team. Time will tell on that for sure. So one thing BJ and I always talk about and, and mention and sometimes make light of is there's so much coverage of the things that go on off the floor in lieu of some of the great things that happen on the court every night in the NBA. And obviously one of those things that's heating up right now is the all-star voting and Kyrie Irving, Trey Young, uh, the leading vote getters among Eastern conference guards. I mean, heck taco fall has a chance to make the all-star game at this point because he's become so popular, but specific to Trey Young as terrific as he's been this season, as talented as he is, can a guy on an eight-win team really be an all-star starter at this point? So first thing to point out is just to remind everybody, the way the fan vote works these days, or all-star voting works these days, is the fans account for only 50% of the vote. And the players collectively vote, that's another 25%. Media panel, which I'm part of, votes, that's another 25%. So if there's some crazy outlier, if Taco Fall somehow jumped up into the top three in the East in the, in the front court, he's not going to end up at the All-Star game because the players – and the media vote, which is the other 50%, will correct it. Trust me. Um, Kyrie Irving is number two as we speak and would be in line to start right now having, despite having missed a ton of games the first couple of months. I don't think that will hold. I think once with the players and media vote, um, even if the fan voting still has him second and Kemba Walker's closing on him, um, I don't think that he's going to start. So th there's, there's some built-in safeguards in this process these days. Um, I don't have a problem with Trey Young starting in the All-Star game. I don't have a problem with Trey Young making the All-Star team, period. The guy's stats are, are, are just through the roof. They're phenomenal. He's a great offensive player. Yeah, he's not a great defensive player, but guess what? Uh, we can go through history and look at even MVPs of this league. Dirk Nowitzki, Steph Curry, Steve Nash, you can, on and on. James Harden, Russell Westbrook. There's plenty of guys who have been phenomenal offensive players in this league who were, you know, uh, average to very bad defenders and still been MVPs, all-stars, all-NBA. Like, like, sometimes we, we overthink this in terms of that part of it. Now, in the wins part of it, again, if you go through history, and I haven't gone to look through this. I should have gone and found, like, the list. I'm, I'm certain you will find plenty of years where some of, of the all-stars came from losing teams. It happens. Um, all-star is an individual achievement. It is not about wins and losses. MVP wins absolutely matter. All NBA even, it, the bar is higher. But the all-star game is different. It's first and foremost a popularity contest on the fan vote part of it and who they want to see. And it really is, I think, about an individual achievement to get there. I, I, if I'm, when I'm doing the exercise, I might use the team's record as a tiebreaker. I'd rather have a guy coming off a winning team. But – Trey Young's been outstanding. I have no problem at all. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think it's going to be tough. And like you said, I had a, actually I had a client last year, uh, Derek Rose, who finished in the top half of the All-Star with the voting. And I think what you pointed out earlier, the thing that when the players and the media vote, it kind of self-corrects itself. You know, there's a there's a kid now on the Miami Heat, Bam. Uh, I think this kid should be an All Star uh, this year. What what are your uh, what are your thoughts there? I think Bam is absolutely an All Star. Um, I think that you know the the Heat. We talk about Jimmy Butler, but really Bam's emergence this year with them having moved off of Whiteside and giving Bam all that much more opportunity and responsibility in that front court. Um, and he has seized it, and he's been great at both ends. Um, he, he's, he's been fantastic. I, I, I absolutely – like, he's not going to make it as a starter, um, most likely. I, I, don't, I don't see that happening with, with the way the uh, voting is going right now. I think Jimmy absolutely should be a starter. He's, I think, on the outside looking in right now, uh, a little bit behind Pascal Siakam still. But uh, I, I would put Jimmy and, and Bam Adebayo both in there for sure. Howard, is Kemba Walker an all-star? And if so, how many of his teammates will be joining him in Chicago? That's a tough one. Um, you know, you never know where the coaches are going. You know, so the coaches still pick the reserves. That's, you know, seven players. And I think, you know, Kemba most likely, most likely overtakes Kyrie Irving either in the fan vote or once the fan vote is, is averaged out with the players and, and media votes, I think there's a pretty good chance that Kemba ends up being the, the second starter next to Trey Young. Maybe that's the way that goes. So then it's okay. How, does the re, how do the reserves break down? And we've already talked about a few guys. Like right now, Jimmy Butler would be a, a reserve if we're going to look at the fan vote, right? So Jimmy, got to be in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Tatum is in the running there in the front court. And... Uh, Bam is there in, in, in the front court in the, in the running. Again, I'm looking at the second returns from the fan voting just to kind of as a, as a, a kind of a, a comparison point. So there's three guys already. Ben Simmons is going to make it as a reserve. That's four. I think Kyle Lowry absolutely should make it. That's five. So now we got two left, right? Do you get Jalen Brown in there? Does Bradley Beal get in there? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's probably two Celtics for sure. I'm not sure which of, of the, the Jays make it, if it's uh, Tatum or Brown. It, it just – you never know where the coaches are going to go with this. They surprise us sometimes. It, it's, been, it's been tough to, to figure out because Jalen has been surging and uh, as improved as Tatum has been, he's had a couple of peaks and valleys this season just in terms of some off-shooting nights followed up by some terrific performances. But I think we'd all agree defensively and all-around play, he's, he's taking the next step. So, obviously, All-Star coming up in February and the other thing that we love and used to live it in the old war room on trade deadline day is that February deadline. So, uh, Kevin Love, Andre Drummond, Marcus Morris mentioned a lot. Which contender do you think is making a move and which of those guys do you think actually changes uniform come the deadline? You know, there's not a lot of optimism among NBA executives right now about this being a really active trade season. Um, that could change, uh, but, you know, some of these are just really tough. Like Marcus Morris, you know, of the Knicks, uh, one-year $15 million deal, very movable. He's a guy who fits with a lot of different teams. He's certainly going to be, uh, you know, coveted. 
by multiple teams and the Knicks going nowhere. There's no reason not to move him unless they're really convincing themselves that he's part of the future, which I think is a stretch. Um, it, it doesn't make, it doesn't really make much sense. He's better off somewhere else. They're better off getting another, if they can get a first round pick or some other young asset. Um, Kevin Love, listen, he's the guy that in a vacuum, if we weren't considering things like, I don't know, contract, we mm-hmm. would say that Kevin Love is a certainty to be moved. He's miserable. He's made it very clear. Um, there's no reason for them to hold on to him, but he's got three years and 90 plus million after this season. And he's up there getting up there in years, he's still a really good player, still a guy who I think can help a lot of teams, but that's a lot to take on. Now, even that being the case, I think there are teams that would be willing to, to take on his contract because they think Kevin Love can help them win games. The problem then becomes what the Cavs want, because as I understand it from the buzz around the league, the Cavaliers still think that they should be getting some pieces of serious value for Kevin Love. But everybody else around the league is saying, no, like we're doing you a favor. We're taking a big contract off your hands, not to mention he's miserable there. So he's also becoming kind of a festering problem for you guys. So we're not going to send you first round picks. We're not going to send you young players. We're not going to send you another all-star in return. We're not going to send you anything except maybe an expiring contract. And I don't think like for the Cavs that as as their stance as of right now, as I understand it, is that that's not going to be good enough. They want value back. So to me, that, that spells possible impasse and him being stuck there for the, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, Andre Drummond is the other one that's obviously interesting because he's pseudo-expiring. He's got a, a $29 million, almost $29 million option for next season. He's expected to probably opt out, become a free agent this summer. So now the problem is how much are you willing to give up for a guy who might walk or a guy who you might be able to sign as a free agent anyway this summer if you're a team with cap room. Uh, but the Pistons, obviously, like they just needed to, to complete. We, we talk about blowing up teams, man. The Pistons, there's 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 not enough like dynamite in the, <laughs> the stock room to to blow this team up fast enough and and, and, and spectacularly enough. It's just it's just an, an an utter mess there, and they they just they really need to tear down and start over. And they probably should have done that, by the way, a year ago. And at this stage, it's, it's getting harder, especially with you know Blake Griffin's knees and his contract. Um, it's it's uh, they're in a really bad spot. So Howard, you hit you hit the nail on the head there with with love and and I just don't see how Cleveland feels it has that kind of leverage to demand a, a, anything of great value in return. Those are players that have been mentioned. One team, whether it's a team that's on the edge of the playoff race right now that thinks that can prope- propel themselves, you know, up to the six or seven spot or a team that's in the middle of the pack that thinks that they can make a leap in the standings? Is there one team out there that you think is going to roll the dice on a deal at the deadline to try to really move up? I don't see it. There, there, there's nobody that I feel like can either has the assets to make a big move or like, I think that, you know, teams will make their minor moves around the edges. I don't, I just, I don't see that, that serious, um, you know, that serious swing for the fences kind of move. Like the, you know, the, the trailblazers are interesting because they started off in such a hole. They've been a little better. They're still, you know, even with Carmelo there, which is kind of like the, the marker for this season, I think they're still hovering around 500, even with him. And they're six games under 500 overall, but the, the West is more forgiving than it's been in a long time. And, and you can probably make the eighth seed 
with a losing record. The Spurs are sitting there right now, four games under 500. So somebody with a losing record might actually make the playoffs in the, in the West. And the Trailblazers are a team that certainly want to be back in the mix there. But what are they going to like, – they've been completely uh, reluctant to ever break up the Lillard-McCollum backcourt. I don't see that that's changed. They're hoping to get Nurkic back. If it's not, if not this season, then, then certainly for next season. So they're not going to want to do anything too hasty. They do have that Hassan Whiteside expiring contract as a trade ship, which makes them interesting. But yep. like, would they try to flip him for you know, Kevin Love deal? I mean, not if it's going to cost them Anthony Simons, you know, not if it's going to cost them anything else. And even then, like, all right, well, Love comes in. Love and Carmelo are basically playing the same position these days. I mean, I think Carmelo is really a four and has been for a few years. So you've, you've invested something in him. Does bringing in Love, you know, cause some bumping into each other in the front court there? Like, I don't know. I don't know if like, I, I liked the idea of Kevin Love there, you know, in the recent past. But right now it feels like it'd be a little forced. Um, so to answer the question, like, I, 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 there isn't. There's not one team that I think, okay, that's the one that they've got to make a move or that's going to be really tempted to make a big move before the deadline. And fact, just to, just, Sorry, go ahead, BJ. Yeah, in fact, just to follow up, you know, we haven't mentioned San Antonio. They have a couple guys, Aldridge, DeRozan. Do you think there's any possibility of movement from, those, uh, from that organization? <laughs> it's funny because every time that the, it always comes up with the Spurs around this time of year, I always just have to trot out the statistic, which is that the San Antonio Spurs haven't made an in-season trade since like, you know, 1913 or something. Um, like the, 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 obviously the NBA didn't exist in 1913 for listeners. Um, Good follow up. The, the Spurs, the Spurs don't make in-season trades. Like I think they've made one in 15 years or something. Uh, they, it's just not in their DNA. It's not the way they operate. And any other team in their position, you'd say, well, the temptation, you know, is there. You, you might as well flip DeMar DeRozan, flip LaMarcus Aldridge. Um, I'm not ruling it out. I mean, the Spurs, look, every, everybody's got to step back and reevaluate at some point and, and decide it's time for a different direction. But they just don't feel like a pull-the-plug-on-the-season kind of team. And, again, they don't make in-season trades, even if they're trying to improve. It's just – it's it's just not the Spurs way. So uh, I will be shocked if they do anything. Now we're back, senior NBA writer for Bleacher Report, host of the Full Forty Eight, and of course, diehard aficionado. Thank you for the time today, my friend. Always great to have you on, and uh, looking forward to seeing you in Chicago for All Star, and uh, hopefully you, uh, myself, and uh, Mr. Armstrong can uh, be in a room soon to uh, to chop it up. Looking forward to that. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been fun. Take care, Howard. Thanks. Thanks. So, as always, great insight, great conversation with the one and only Howard Beck, and uh, hopefully uh, the three of us at some point soon will be in the same room talking ball and uh, recording something non-remote as we are today. But, BJ, um, you know, it's interesting. Usually we come out of the holidays and then the new year and we feel like there's a little lull before All-Star and I'm not feeling that at all. There's a ton going on. So I want to go to Dallas first. Uh, we've been very high on them for obvious reasons uh, at the start of the season determining, okay, this team is for real. We know what Luke is bringing to the table, but the supporting cast has impressed us. But all of a sudden... They flattened out a bit. They're seven and eight in their last fifteen games. They've got the Lakers and the Sixers coming in for back-to-backs Friday and Saturday. 
Do you think this is a situation where teams are just seeing more film on this young team and starting to figure them out? Well, this is a league that's very tough to win in. And teams, players are beginning to see to see what we've been talking about early in the season. This is a, a Dallas team that needs to be taken seriously. And because of that, I think players are beginning to circle that game. And you can see how they are struggling, especially at home for a young team. Normally you have it the other way around. You play well at home and you struggle on the road, especially for young teams. They're able to, they've been able thus far to have a winning record on the road and struggle a little bit at home. Very and good I point. Think, so just for clarity, 12 and 5 on the road as we record this on Thursday, 11 and 9 at home. Yeah, so you can see that teams are coming in there with the idea of, let's see how good we are. And they're putting emphasis on the game especially when they come into Dallas and they're playing. So you can see the respect that the, that the Dallas Mavericks has gained around the league because they are a good team. They are well coached. They do have a great young player. But with that comes responsibility. And the responsibility is I have to reach that level of effort and energy every night. And I think that's what the Dallas Mavericks are going through. They're going through their growing pains right now, which is a good thing. But the fact that they have been able to respond like they have on the road is a great sign for the future of this Dallas Mavericks team. And you just have to you have to go through this. So I think this is part of the growing pains. I think they are still ahead of schedule. And for the most part, I think they've played and performed at a level that none of us had them at, at this juncture of the season. So they will continue to get better. But they now is they now are a group that has to respond to the, you know, the level of intensity that the other teams are bringing, and especially at home because that's something that they definitely can clean up a little bit. For sure. Um, one question on Dallas for the remainder of the season. Obviously, they're ahead of schedule. Luca, KP, but you know, Finney Smith, Brunson, Dwight Powell. They're getting contributions from from all over the place. If you're Dallas and there's a trade out there that can potentially catapult you in the standings for the remainder of this season, obviously making a deal like that, you're going to have to give up some sort of future assets and something of value. But if you're Dallas, are you – out there looking or are you just you're holding you're standing pat with this team and building this team in the here and now what do you think well I, I, if i'm that team the dallas mavericks and i haven't spoken to anyone down there I, i'm looking at the team and going I'm, I'm i'm standing pat i'm not moving because we are ahead of schedule we're ahead of schedule right now with room for improvement from top to bottom you know mm -hmm. luca is still a young player. I mean, the, you know, this is, a, this is his second year. Porzingis is just coming back from an ACL injury. We know he's going to get better as he gets more and more comfortable with his body and where he's at and it's going to continue to grow into the system. There's no need to make any moves or trades to do anything right now until you figure out who and what you have. You know, it, 
as you look at a team and you're trying to build a team, first you want to find out, you know, what you have. And as great as Luca has been, we're still trying to figure out, you know, where he's going to, where are we going to utilize his talents that's best, not only for him, but for the group. And that, and that, that takes time to do. And I, I would stand, kind of let it play itself out. But the, the biggest thing is I wouldn't do anything that would mess up my cap situation because they have a great young talent. They have a talent that will be a top five player in this league. And now it's very important that you put not only good pieces around him, you put great role players around him, high character role players, because that is the formula to win in this league is, you know, you have a great player or two, and then you surround that player with high level role players who will know how to play their role. And that is, you know, look, this Rick Carlisle has won Cuban. These guys have won championships. And I think they understand that. And they're going to be patient as they go about this process. Yeah. I don't see them making any, uh, any hasty decisions. Porzingis is a max player right now. Luca is still on his rookie deal. Tim Hardaway Jr., you could argue that contract is something they want to they, they may want to move. Courtney Lee could be moved before the deadline. Uh, but you look at this roster, and let's just end it with this point. As great as Luca has been, and Porzingis clearly is, is making strides on his way back, the, the job that Carlisle has done with this roster is, is really, really impressive. So uh, Dallas, despite their recent quote-unquote struggles, uh, they've definitely been one of the positive uh, stories of the season thus far, and and a lot of fun to watch. So yeah, no, um, no question. That's it's been yep. it's been fun to watch them, and to watch Rick Carlisle. You know, to watch Rick Carlisle really, you know, he's really opened himself up as a coach, and to watch his growth. When I say his growth, I mean this guy is a, a championship caliber coach. To watch how he has really adapted his style to this era has been. You know, I, I'm a Carlisle fan, but to watch it has been amazing to watch how he's playing and, and the style he's playing right now and, and fundamentally how they're how they all are clicking as a group. So it's been it, it's it's been terrific. And I'm sure they're expecting big things as they should down there in Dallas. Yeah, he's he's had a heck of a career, both as a player and a coach and uh, a great interview as well. Uh, he did an interview with Mike Wise. Uh, this past year that was unbelievable to listen to, his, his journey through the game. So pivoting from Dallas to Utah, the Jazz have quietly, and, and I don't think people realize this, they've won 12 mm -hmm. of 13. Now one of those wins is against a team with a winning record, the Clippers. Their next five games are against sub-500 teams, and as we always talk about, you've got to win the games you're supposed to win in this game, which is what they've been doing, and they've been doing a lot of that without Mike Conley. Uh, how do you think this translates deeper into the schedule when the opposition gets tougher, as well as what you are seeing from the Jazz right now? Well, you know, I, I follow the Jazz quite closely out here on the West Coast, and they've been very impressive. And that one team that you're talking about was against the L.A. Clippers, and I happened to be at that game. And it was a very impressive game by the Clippers. Their team played well. And in particular, their young superstar, Donovan Mitchell. And I circle this game around and do I dare say the following. 
this was a moment in time that I think Donovan Mitchell knows now that he belongs in the conversation with the elite players. I, I think that game for him will be a staple game in his career because he did this and he had that type of game versus the Clippers and in particular Kawhi Leonard on the road in Staples Center. And they have my attention. And the reason they have my attention is because of Rudy Gobert. They have a player who can play off the dribble and play the game when it gets scattered. They have, you know, Jordan Clarkson has been a terrific pickup for them. But you can see. Such an underrated addition for what they need. Yes. And you can see, see that they have the elements of a good team. They really do. They play well as a group. They play together as a group. They have shooting. They have size. They have rim protectors. And they have enough young bodies. You know, and, and, and the thing that I like about them more than anything, you know, we talk about Mike Conley being out. You know, when you, when you look at a great team and you, you watch all the great teams that have played over the years, the great teams, their players play more, more often than the players on the bad teams. This team plays together, and with the exception of Mike Conley, they've been a group that has gone out there every single night and gone about their business, methodically going about their business, and they're getting, they're getting great contributions. And the, the, the one thing that makes them a team to me that, is, that has my attention is that their bench now and, and, and Coach Snyder is beginning to get confidence in that bench. And when you start seeing the Moody A's, you know, he had 20 points last night. You see Jordan Clarkson. Okay, they've moved Joe Ingles into the starting lineup, and now they're beginning to play as a group. And then when the Jordan Clarkson and Moody and those guys are coming in with that type of energy, that forces the other teams to say they could be better off the bench than they are as the starters, and they have a really good starting unit. And I really like this team. I like what they have. They have a great mixture of youth. They can go small. And now when the other teams go small and quick, they have the same athleticism to be able to play the game at that speed. And with Rudy Gobert back there, he's an X factor. This kid really is a terrific, terrific player in any era, but it's in particular in this era because of the way the game is played. I mean, he really affects the way you have to game plan against him because he's such, he's such a force back there. And uh, I'm beginning to see this group come together and this, the really scary thing about it is I think they can get better. And I like the confidence. And I, and, and, and I want to say this. You have to give the front office credit for what they've done. They've pushed all their chips in the middle of the table. And the players are responding. And I love it when players respond to the pressure of winning. And they're responding to it. The coaches are there. And they're about their business. And they're methodically going about it game in and game out in a professional way. And uh, they've won, I think, 11 out of 12. And we'll see where this carries them. But I, I think this is a good group, a good team. And um, I wouldn't want to play them in the playoffs because of the weapons that they have, in particular Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. Those players are going to do what they do no matter who they play in the playoffs. With shooting around them, with Connolly bound to come back and provide just an infusion of um, his presence – 
his experience, veteran leadership, uh, th- they're going to be a problem for people. Two points you made that I just want to really amplify. One, the front office pushing everything to the table. There was no inclination a player like Bojan Bogdanovich was going to end up with the Jazz this offseason. And when he became available and they had the money, they went out and many people thought that contract was too big for him. Guy's averaging almost 21 points per game. He's shooting 44% from the floor. He's shooting 41 from three. And he is such a difference maker out there. And between, you know, we thought Connolly was going to be the big difference maker for Donovan. And it turns out that Bogdanovich has been the biggest difference maker because he's opened up the floor for Donovan. And Donovan's numbers are, are solid. His field goal percentage is up to 46%. He's actually taking the same amount of shots. Scary. Like to the decimal, 19.9 field goal attempts per game this season. Shooting 46 from the floor, 36 from three. He's just poised. He's starting to really, as you said, come into his own out there. Uh, at the star level, but the other star is Rudy Gobert. And when you're a guy every night that's going to bring almost 15 points and 14 and a half rebounds and be that defensive presence, um, it's it's something that you just you, you shake your head in amazement at because he, he brings things to the table that not many do in this league. So Utah, for sure, we're going to keep an eye on. Uh, last item for today, we, we talked about it with, with Howard a little bit, uh, Howard Beck a little while ago earlier in the episode about Kyrie Irving. And, uh, you know, we know he's not coming back anytime soon. Brooklyn has uh, lost seven straight, fallen to the eighth spot in the east, now behind Orlando. You got a team like Charlotte that's gaining some confidence, even though their record may not show it. They're better than I think some people expected. They have a lot of young talent. But for Brooklyn, the next stretch, it's really tough. They've got Miami, Atlanta. You have to show up and play because of Trey Young and John Collins, and they play hard. Then Utah, then at Philly, then Milwaukee, then Philly again in the Lakers. I mean, the bottom could fall out here on the nets, and it can open up for a team like Charlotte, who I mentioned, Chicago, Detroit. Washington's playing their ass off. I say all of this to say, BJ, can one of these teams climb up the standings in the East, and can we see Brooklyn on the outside looking in if Kyrie's not back? Well, absolutely. You know, this, uh, you know, again, you know, when you're playing in the NBA, anything is possible. You have to respect every game. And this team, like many teams, have been decimated by injuries, talking about the Brooklyn Nets. And they have a significant injury to not one, but two of their key players, and Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, who we know is going to be out for the remainder of the year. You know, it's going to be tough, but you know what? This is what the NBA is all about. Now, who's going to buckle down and who's going to figure it out and who's going to continue to fight? You know, yes, we have injuries. Yes, our key guys are out, but the games are going to continue and you have to find a way to get it done. And um, those other teams, they're going to continue to play and they're going to continue to fight. You're talking about Detroit, Chicago, Washington, uh, Charlotte. You know, they come out, you know, when you watch a team like the Charlotte Hornets, they come out every single night, and it seemed like they're always in a close game. 
<laughs> they, every single game, they seem like they're they're always in a close game. And, yep. you know, they lose by, I think, two points last night to Toronto. But then they go down there and they beat Dallas at home. So this team has found a way to compete every single night. And to their credit, with young players, they're giving themselves a chance to win. And, uh, you know, Detroit had some really good wins on this road stretch that they had out here. I, I saw them play a couple times out here in L.A. They go up to Golden State, get a win, fly back to Cleveland a couple nights ago and get another nice win on the road before they return home. So these teams understand it. Um, they all have good players, good young players, and in particular guard play. And I think guard play is a very important in today's game. So I think it's going to be a dogfight as we uh, move into the second half of the season here, and uh, we'll see how it turns out. Miles Bridges, P.J. Washington, Terry Rozier, and Devontae Graham make that team, as you said, so much fun to watch each and every night because they are out there. It's like guys are going to the park to prove who they are, and that's the attitude of those guys right now. And they had the Toronto game. And they yeah. unfortunately couldn't close it out in overtime. But they're playing really, really hard. And the fan base is starting to fall in love with these new faces and players. And uh, Charlotte's a great story. And, and basketball in Charlotte, uh, obviously it's a smaller market. But when that team is good, that adds a lot to the NBA. And there's a lot of excitement there. And uh, last year, that NBA All-Star, they did an unbelievable job in Charlotte of honoring those that helped build that Hornets franchise, meaning players early on who left it all out there, Muggsy, Del Curry, Lonzo Mourning, Glenn Rice, and there's a lot of love there. So seeing the Hornets compete and possibly uh, fight for that la last playoff spot could be, uh, could be a lot of fun. So great show today, my friend. Covered a lot. Special thanks to the one and only Howard Beck of Bleacher Report, our producer Mike Lieber. Bruce Bernstein, editor Benjamin Wolfen, and the entire Pure Hoops media team. Be sure to check out the Mike Wise Show each and every Monday. Catch and shoot with Otto Strong and Aaron Berlin on Wednesdays. Bucket Sports and Blocks with the one and only Monica McNutt on Thursdays. And, of course, the Pure Hoops podcast coming to you with BJ Armstrong and myself, Eric Newman. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the NFL playoff action. Of course, BJ and I with the Lions and Browns will be watching without any emotion. And um, enjoy all the hoops. And of course, stay pure. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.